Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Mary Mate. How are you, Katie? I'm good, you? I'm fine, I'm well. You're famous. You're more famous this week than you were last week. I am? Well, you're a prolific conspiracy theorist. Oh yeah, right, yes, that's right. The Guardian has come out and uh, declared me to be the most prolific spreader of disinformation when it comes to Syria. And their source is a study that was put out by a think tank called the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. What the Guardian didn't mention to its audience is that this think tank is funded by the US and various other belligerents in the Syria dirty war. And this think tank, the ISD, did this study in collaboration with something called the Syria Campaign, which is funded by a oil tycoon who happens to be also a major funder of a major Syrian opposition coalition. So basically a report that is heavily biased, doesn't like the work I'm putting out on Syria and wants to have it essentially silenced. That's the, that's the message of the reporters. They want social media to crack down on voices like mine. And what's so funny is they even go so far as to say that because of the work that I do on Syria, we are impacting government policy, that we are muddling policy decisions. That would be great. Uh, so the same people who are funding, who are working for governments uh, that are involved in the dirty war in Syria and have been involved in the dirty war in Syria are now also accusing us of muddling their own funders' decisions. So, you know, the power we have. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So, Aaron, what was it like when the Guardian journalist who wrote this piece contacted you for a comment, <laughs> which is standard practice when you're writing a piece about someone, right? Yes. Well, what's his name? I think it's Mark Townsend. Yeah, he did yeah, not Mark contact Townsend. me. He didn't contact you. Wow. No. Well, no. what were some of the most damning examples that they gave of you spreading conspiracy theories, <laughs> which obviously would be a major focus of the piece? Yes. Well, The Guardian doesn't identify a single case of me spreading conspiracy theories or disinformation because the report he's basing his article on also doesn't identify any cases of me spreading disinformation or conspiracy theories. They cite some examples of my work, uh, a couple. One of them, they don't even characterize it properly. But anyway, they don't even argue in the study that what I'm saying is false or, or a conspiracy theory because they can't. They actually can't challenge what I say right. on the merits because basically the vast bulk of my work on Syria has to do with the OPCW cover-up scandal. And all of my work on that is based on leaked documents from the OPCW. And so since they can't challenge me on the merits of what I'm saying, they have to accuse me of spreading disinformation, which they can't substantiate, and call for my censorship. So right. that's what this is all about, is trying to get me silenced. Well, it's great, because they're kind of showing, not telling what we were talking about last week with Paul Mason. And, uh, you know, he was announcing, and we saw emails announcing that they were going to try to go after the gray zone. So maybe this is part of their campaign, just an example of what we were saying. I mean, we don't know for sure Paul Mason was involved in this, but this is certainly the type of thing that he must be very happy to see. Oh, I'm sure he's thrilled. I doubt he's directly involved, but it's all the same network of people. It's funny. The Guardian says that people like myself are a part of a network of conspiracy theorists. Right. And initially, actually, the headline in the article said that we're Russia backed, a Russia backed network. They took that out, I think, when they realized that that was a lot too libelous. Yeah. But um, the irony is that we're being targeted by a network of conspiracy theorists who are trying to right. paint us as Kremlin agents, uh, even without any evidence, who are trying to say that we are spreading disinformation, even though they can't identify a single piece of disinformation. And they're all part of the same network because they all come back to the same state-funded sources, the US and the UK. All of the people who put out the study are funded in some way by the US and UK and allied governments. And they're tied to other people and they quote other people in their study who are also funded by the same governments. So the study cites people from the White Helmets, from the BBC, uh, from uh, Bellingcat, right. all these groups are part of the same network. And that network is trying to silence journalism that exposes the reality of the dirty war in Syria. It's also, they do a couple of, they do something pretty sneaky and pretty stupid, but maybe it's smart because I feel like maybe it works, but they do something, they say like, oh, and these people often talk about the white helmets, which then will make it so that people who see you mentioning the white helmets will be like, aha, it's true. They do talk about the white helmets, ergo, they're conspiracy theorists, even though that doesn't make you a conspiracy theorist to mention a certain group. But it's kind of a way, a shorthand way, I think, of trying to tra uh, train people to associate this group and conspiracy theorists. Yeah, well, look, the whole thing is basically it's a it's a psyop. 
they don't have any substance. They can't actually demonstrate where I say anything that's false or a conspiracy right. theory. So they have to come up with all these uh, grand uh, narratives and sneaky ways to try to paint us as being nefarious. So they'll say that we're uh, our claims are backed up by Russia or amplified by Russia as if somehow what I'd say has anything to do with Russia. Yeah. Or they try to, again, try to blame us for governments not being able to make effective policy decisions that somehow we're so nefarious and conniving that we make it hard for the governments that are funding their study to make policy decisions right. about Syria. And what they really powerful. mean by that is they want more intervention in Syria than already happened. They want, uh, and they want more, they want more sanctions. They want to prevent Syria from rebuilding after a 10 year dirty war in which still so much of the population is struggling under heavy U.S. sanctions and they can't rebuild. And people who are in the Syrian opposition, this element of it at least, and in the governments that tried to destroy Syria with a massive covert proxy war that went on for a decade, want to see that continue, want to take, want to continue to take revenge. So part of the methodology is to silence voices who are pointing out their actions. And right. You know, that's what they're trying to do. Mark Townsend, if you're watching this, we invite you on to Useful Idiots because we mm -hmm. understand you were too pressed to get this piece out to ask Aaron Mate for a comment. So come on the show. You can hash it out with Aaron or at the very least, you can just come on and get a comment for him from him and add it to your to your uh, piece. Uh, another thing I want to point out that people do is they say, like, listen to Syrians or Aaron Mate hates Syrians or X person hates Syrians. And what they're doing, of course, is they're creating this monolith as if the Syrian people are a monolith, a flattened monolith who all agree with each other, as if there aren't so many Syrians who disagree. You know, obviously things like this happen. There's a Syrians who support Assad, there's Syrians who hate Assad, but they're asking you to erase a certain part of the population because it's inconvenient for their political narrative. You know, I went to Syria a year ago and when I was there, I met a lot of people who have a lot of criticism of their government, the kleptocracy, this, you know, bath regime that has ruled the country for a long time and gives each other jobs and um, it has corruption issues and there's human rights abuses, all that stuff. But no one that I met wanted to live under the rule of Al Qaeda or ISIS or all the other sectarian death squads that the U.S. and its allies were supporting. That was the alternative. And people are proud of their government that they defeated that. And because that is the, the mentality in Syria, that's why policymakers in Washington want to make Syrians suffer, is because they defeated a dirty war that had it been successful, it would have brought to power groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda and other awful sectarian death squads that you know kill uh, minorities, that uh, commit all sorts of horrible abuses. And so people don't want that. And right. people who've been bombarded with Western propaganda are being prevented from understanding that. But that's just yeah. the basic reality. Well, where was the editor at The Guardian? No one thought, hey, try to at least, you know, email Aaron at like 12 a.m. and publish it at 8 a.m. so he has no time to, to respond. At least do that. Not even going through the motions of being a responsible journalist. The Guardian has changed in recent years. And uh, people like John Pilger, the Australian journalists have spoken about this, where basically voices like his who are critical of Western hegemony have been chased out. Yeah. And The Guardian, after working with Julian Assange and publishing the leaks that he exposed, they've really taken part in the campaign to smear him. And The Guardian, you know, my experience with The Guardian was, I don't know if you remember this, Katie, but a few years ago, I interviewed this guy, Luke Harding. Oh, yes. Who wrote a book Collusion. called Collusion. Right. And this was yeah. what this was when I kind of came out publicly as a right. Russiagate skeptic. And so his whole book was called Collusion. It's about a secret conspiracy between Trump and Russia. It was a bestseller. He was on all the networks, given the royal treatment, NPR, Fresh Air, MSNBC, all that stuff. So he came on my show at the time when I was at uh, this outlet called The Real News. And uh, I interviewed him and it was a disaster for him. I think he couldn't defend his premise that there was collusion between Trump and Russia. And so since then, uh, that's been basically my experience with The Guardian. And so, you know, maybe this is them taking revenge on me. <laughs> um, I right. don't know. But overall, The Guardian has changed under the leadership of an editor named Kath Feiner, who I used to know. She wrote a good play about Rachel Corey a long oh, time wow. ago. But uh, they've uh, they've changed. And this is an example of that. But Aaron, you were so sneaky with Luke Harding. You asked him to prove the title of his book. <laughs> you very immorally and unethically said, so where's the collusion? And then he hung yeah. up on you. That's right. He left at the end. 
anyway, that's shameful. And again, all you have to do is get a, just for your own sake, Guardian, why not try to get a quote from the guy? Get a quote from Aaron, let him say something, and then you can continue to smear him. Just for your own sake, I'm, I'm telling you how to better smear people. You want to inoculate yourself from these criticisms of being a joke. Very basic part of due diligence when you're writing an article about someone is you ask for a comment. You're here. Here, here. All right. Well, should we get to right. our? Yeah, four let's get to it. Our groups? four basic food groups. Yep. So we got Democrats suck. I got Democrats suck. For so for my Democrats suck. Oh, this is sad, um, but not surprising. So a group of environmental organizations is suing the Biden administration over issuing more than three thousand five hundred permits to drill for oil and gas on public lands in New Mexico and Wyoming. And according to the lawsuit, the drilling could result in six hundred million metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, Jeremy Nichols of the group Wild Earth Guardian said the Biden administration is literally drilling away the climate. So drill, baby, drill, to borrow a uh, slogan from Sarah Palin. That's what they're doing. It's nice to see how bipartisan this is, how <laughs> ruining the earth is a bipartisan effort. And they're the pro-science party. They're supposed to be good on climate change. Anyway, so that's my Democrats suck. Democrats suck. All right. So for Republicans suck. There was an election in Colombia, and the leftist won. Yeah, probably because I don't want to take too much credit. You guys have heard of the Katie Halper Show bump. Usually that requires the candidate come on the show, and then they win the election. In this case, we couldn't get Petro, but we did get Ali Vargas and Camila Escalante to come on the show. So it was a kind of indirect Katie Halper show bump or Katie Halper show bump once removed. So I th it was a very close election. I think we probably can all agree that the thing that pushed him over the edge was probably that Katie Halper show episode. So in winning, Gustavo Petro becomes the first leftist president of Colombia. And his vice president, Francia Marquez, is a former housekeeper and activist. So this is historic and an Afro-Latina woman and the first uh, will be the first black uh, vice president of Colombia. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a historic victory for Colombia. So Republicans in the U.S. are not taking this too well. And let's go to the freedom loving, democracy loving Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. Yeah, I just want to say for on, on behalf of the people of Florida, we watched the election results down in Colombia. And we have a lot of great Colombian Americans here in our state who were very concerned uh, about what was going on. And I think the results of that election were, have been very, very troubling uh, for people that believe in freedom in the Western Hemisphere uh, to elect a, a former narco terrorist and a Marxist uh, to, to lead Colombia is going to be disastrous. And so we've stood with the people uh, here in Florida that have ties to Colombia. We've had a great relationship with Colombia as a state. Uh, we were all hoping that the outcome would be different, uh, but we've got a problem in the Western Hemisphere uh, with Marxism and totalitarianism uh, really spreading. I mean, we thought, you know, 25 years ago, the Cold War and all this stuff, and it just keeps rearing its head. Uh, so uh, we'll continue to stand uh, with the people uh, of Florida here who are passionate about freedom in the Western Hemisphere, particularly in Colombia, uh, but but very, very disappointing and very, very troubling result in that election. Wow. Thanks, Rick. Our guest today, Ryan Grimm, actually pointed out that even so far, Colombia is far right are accepting the election right. results. So the far right in Colombia is being more conciliatory than Ron DeSantis of Florida, who doesn't even live in Colombia and is, right. not, is not Colombian. And right. look, I mean, you can pick apart everything he said. He talks about being worried about narco-terrorists. The US main allies in Latin America, including Colombia, for a long time have been narco-terrorists. Right. Uh, you can go back to the 1980s and see even the CIA directly cooperating with narco-terrorists in its uh, dirty war on Nicaragua. And that's continued um, right. since. Yeah. So, but it's just, that's, uh, the you know, the Ron DeSantis who said, claims to love freedom and democracy is troubled that a free election elected the wrong people. And if history is any guide, when that happens in Latin America, the US does everything it can to right. overthrow that government. Right, little Bay of Piglets part two. Bay of yeah. Piglets 2.0, maybe he's gonna sure. launch that. Also, yeah. Paul Passimino from Amazon Watch is suing the CIA for helping, for terrorizing Colombia in their attempt to kill um, Pablo Escobar. And not just Pablo Escobar, but like, you know, trying to kill his lawyer, his lawyer's kids, all that stuff. Uh, so that's another example of the U.S. being on the wrong side of history in Colombia. And also, of course, Plan Colombia. And Hernandez, the, the guy who he beat, uh, interestingly enough, said he was a 
big fan of Adolf Hitler. Now, wow. to be fair, I actually think it was a question of senility, not open Nazism, because he said he meant Einstein, which is kind of funny, because imagine how upset Hitler would be if he was confused with Einstein. But he was talking about, uh, uh, I think, Einstein. Either way, you don't want him because he's either an anti-Semite or he can't t keep track of the difference between Adolf Hitler and Albert Einstein. Probably the first person to ever conflate those two people. So what I think makes people like DeSantis so upset about this victory in Colombia is not just the fact that this is historic for Colombia, the first leftist president elected to office with a um, Afro-Colombian vice president. But also, this is a disaster for the U.S. regime change operation in Venezuela because, you know, Colombia and Venezuela neighbor each other. And it's very difficult if you're trying to overthrow the government of Venezuela to not have your Colombian client state, tr traditionally a client state on your side anymore. And that appears to be the case here where this new government is not going to be going along with that. So that's what I think has people like DeSantis so upset. It's not just the horror of seeing a leftist uh, claim victory in a longtime U.S. client state, but also what that means for the regime change operation of the U.S. and neighboring Venezuela. All right. Which also has not been going very well, where you have videos in recent weeks of Juan Guaido, uh, the uh, guy who the U.S. chose to be its puppet and still refers to as the interim president, even though no one's voted for him. Uh, he's been attacked by his own supporters. He's had meetings recently with his own supporters, and he's been attacked. There's been these violent confrontations. And recently, Nancy Pelosi was speaking at the Summit of the Americas and couldn't even remember who Juan Guaido was so sad. Uh, after giving him a standing ovation at Trump's uh, State of the Union a few years ago. So that's the state of the U.S. commitment to democracy right now in Latin America, is that his efforts to overthrow democracy are not going well. That's so unfortunate. Well, that's a pretty good Republican suck. Uh, for Isn't That Weird, I have a great story. It's a really fascinating story. It's up at the New York Post. Uh, the headline is, I was loveless before I married a ragdoll, and now we have a baby. A woman in Brazil found a man who was made for her. Merivone Rocha Moraes, 37, complained to her mother about being single and stressed about not having a dance partner. In an attempt to cheer her daughter up, the mother made her a ragdoll named Marcelo, according to Jam Press. When my mom made Marcelo and first introduced me to him, I fell in love with him. It was love at first sight. It was because I didn't have a foro dancer. I would go to these dances, but it, I would, but wouldn't always find a partner. Then he entered into my life, and it all made sense. They've uh, been in a romantic relationship since the day they met, which is good because sometimes, you know, it takes a while to get the chemistry right. But look at that. You can just see from this photo. Now, for people who are just listening and not watching, there's a woman in a wedding dress who is the, um, of course, protagonist of the story. And the other protagonist is her rag doll uh, who's wearing a tux, although no tie, which is kind of weird. And he has a mustache, nice blue eyes, nice brown, curly hair. There's some other photos, a little racy. You, you may wonder what happened. Why did they get married? Well, Aaron, I don't mean to blow up anyone's spot, but it was a shotgun wedding. They got married after she discovered she was pregnant. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, He is a man I have always wanted in my life. It's true Marcelo got me pregnant. He didn't take care of himself, and he didn't use a condom, she claimed. He got me pregnant. I took the test. I was positive. I couldn't believe it. Not wanting a baby out of wedlock, the couple decided to make things official and got married. Well, and congrats to them. Oh, look. Congrats to them. Are we going to see a picture? Oh, look at that cute baby. That cute Look at that baby. baby. Looks just like him. I, sorry. It's always so unfortunate when the woman who does the labor and goes through all the birth pangs and all the pain and gets stretch marks and everything, and then the kid doesn't even look like you. <laughs> and here we see very clearly it has the father's curly hair um fabric like face mm -hmm. he's very handsome he's very handsome yeah so we're all we're very happy um i mean it is a little stressful for her being the sole breadwinner mm. yeah that's right uh, a ragdoll can't really yeah do too much uh uh work you know but he, also uh, like around the house too i mean who's going to be like can the ragdoll be washing dishes probably not no but maybe he could actually clean the dishes with his own body there we go there we there go. go. We just saw. So he's must be great around the house, literally around the house. You just use him to, you know, clean some schmutz up. And yeah, well, that's how to make a relationship work. Yeah, we could all learn a lot from them. Yeah.
Well, congrats to them. Yeah, congrats to them. Okay, so if we're isn't that terrible, we're going to use something that really could have gone under our category of Republicans suck, but we had to go with that DeSantis clip about Columbia because that was because that was so Republican sucky. So for isn't that terrible, we're going to go to another Republican and another one of these crazy ads where these Republicans love to fantasize about shooting people in their ads. And this is a Republican candidate named Eric Greitens, and he's going after what he calls rhinos, which is Republicans in name only. I'm Eric Greitens, Navy SEAL, and today we're going rhino hunting. Feeds on corruption and is marked by the stripes of cowardice. Join the MAGA crew, get a rhino hunting permit. There's no bagging limit, no tagging limit, and it doesn't expire until we save our country. So for people who are only listening, that uh, the video showed what men in fatigue spattering down a door. Yeah. Now, what you didn't see is a rhino, which is interesting. No rhino to be found. No, no, no. But it's, they're clearly going after the rhinos and they're inviting their followers to uh, support them and come right. along. And they're bragging about how easy it is to go after rhinos, to kill rhinos. Right. right. And but man, it's like, you know, if I'm a Republican right now, it, you know, if I'm someone who's been called a rhino, it's got to be a scary time. You have ads being made about SWAT teams raiding your home and yeah, possibly killing you because they're armed with heavy weaponry. So these Republicans, man, you know, they're um, they don't mess around. They really don't. Yeah, they're already fleeing. That's why they weren't any in the house. Right. Yeah, they're that's they're that scared. Fair enough. Yeah. I would, too. So I don't know for being a political party that advocates uh, SWAT raids on your own party members i'd say that's pretty terrible yeah that is, isn't that terrible indeed we also have uh, a stone moment for people uh we think you'll really enjoy this let's let's show the stone moment of uh of uh joseph biden the president of the united states and a stone moment again is when a public oh, yeah. figure appears to be high on marijuana yes, exactly yeah okay. we started this during the um 2020 uh primary and it would be any uh, candidate who looked like they were intoxicated. Uh, Biden was most, most of them were Biden, but, uh, they didn't have to be. Now, of course it's all Biden because he's president. Okay. So we see him and, and Jill and some other people riding their bike, looking good, looking good, gets off the bike. Oh, and he's down, falls off the bike. People come over to him. Now this was a terrible moment for his image i think now could have happened to any of us i've fallen off a moving bicycle so far be it for me to criticize him but again i wasn't the president of the united states facing a lot of questions about my age and mental acuity i mean people fall off bikes it's just uh, joe joe's had a lot of uh, clumsy moments so this is just adds to his gag reel but right. um you know I've, I've seen some democrats basically retorting by saying that well at least joe biden can ride a bike their guy, Trump, has never been videoed riding a bike because right. they, they claimed he couldn't even ride one. He's not physically capable of doing that. I have no idea if that's sure or not, but that's that's where we're at. You know, yeah. it's the bicycle wars. It's the bicycle wars, yeah. yeah. I always said that, you know, people, what we should have done when Bernie should have challenged, um, uh, well, everyone, including Biden, but certainly Trump to a basketball game. You think Bernie would have won? Oh, of course. Are you kidding? Have you seen yeah. him? He scores baskets. He scores. Yeah. When they say Bernie would have won, is that what they're referring to? The Bernie. Oh, maybe. Trump maybe. in a basketball game. Okay, yeah. Right. Bernie would have won a basketball game. Mm. Well, we have a great interview coming up for you. Uh, we're very excited to be talking to Ryan Grimm. Ryan Grimm is the uh, politics editor, DC bureau chief of The Intercept, and he has a great article out at The Intercept called Elephant in the Zoom. Meltdowns have brought progressive advocacy groups to a standstill at a critical moment in world history. He's also the author of We've Got People, from Jesse Jackson to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, The End of Big Money and the Rise of a Movement. So without any further ado, let us bring in Ryan Graham. Welcome back, Ryan. Good to be back. 
Thanks for joining us. So we want to have you on to talk about this piece that you wrote called Elephant in the Zoom. Meltdowns have brought progressive advocacy groups to a standstill at a critical moment in world history. So before we get into this piece, what made you think of writing in the first place? That's a, that's a good question. It, it was a, a story originally was just going to be what we used to call back at HuffPost a listicle or Buzz, you know, old BuzzFeed listicle, where it was a, I, I started noticing that every article that was coming out about a meltdown at a particular progressive advocacy organization read almost like exactly the same. It was like paint by numbers. The only differences would be the name of the organization and like the precise number of, you know, uh, of, of staff who spoke you know, uh, anonymously to whether it was BuzzFeed, HuffPost, New York Times, The Intercept. We we wrote some of these um, Prism, like it, uh, Teen Vogue, on and on, like on and on. Like everybody was doing these stories, and so we created a kind of a Google Doc with with all of the like the meat of all of them, and and you couldn't really tell like which was about which organization. They were also all kind of described in such vague terms. If you would read the accounts of what went on in these organizations, they would say that, you know, you know, 12 staffers who asked for anonymity to speak openly about the, uh, you know, the culture within the Audubon society say that it's a kind of white, white supremacy dominated culture, you know, uh, you know, rife with, you know, misogyny and on and on like the, you, and you, you could basically copy and paste these paragraphs and move them from one story to another and just replace which organization was talking about. And they never ended up getting into the specifics really of like, well, what, like what in particular happened? Occasionally you'd get some specifics, but in general, it was just a blanket, like this has a bad culture. Everybody's quitting. It's not, and you know, all the management's getting fired and, and people are being retaliated against it. Just, you know, portraits of imploding organizations. And at first, yeah, we were just going to do a listicle that, that, that put all of these together just to say like, wow, look at, look at this phenomenon. Look, it's happening everywhere in the same terms, whether it's, like I said, the Audubon Society or Planned Parenthood or ACLU, whatever it is. And, but then the story needed an introduction, obviously you can't just like slap it up there. And then the introduction required you know, more context for what was in the introduction. And then that context, you know, required more. And, you know, pretty soon it would, it, the introduction had, had ballooned into its own kind of 10,000 word piece. And we, and we just incorporated the, those articles uh, that had been written at other outlets into the piece. And that was, and that was deliberate. Like the, the point was not to relitigate and re-report a lot of these specific meltdowns, but to rely on the the reporting and the language of, from those other papers, BuzzFeed, Us, etc., because that because that, those are artifacts too of this of this time period. Like the Prism article, I'd never heard of Prism uh, before, but it's a kind of a nonprofit that's connected to Daily Coast and gets some foundation funding um, that covers kind of the social justice world, and you know they did this long piece about the Guttmacher Institute. And that piece itself is an interesting artifact of this of this moment. You start your piece by looking at a conflict that happens at the Guttmacher Institute, which is a kind of research uh, mm -hmm. organization that provides really good research about um, abortion issues, reproductive rights issues. Can you set that up for people who haven't read the article? Yeah, and, and, and I picked Guttmacher because it's kind of a, even though it has a $30 million budget, it is pretty low profile and not a polarizing institution. Like you right. start with say ACLU, people have preformed opinions about that, about that conflict, about it. Uh, Guttmacher, it's like everybody likes the research they do. They're extremely well-respected. Uh, even the like, the like Federalist Society people are going to rely on Guttmacher know research because they're they're just you know widely regarded as being the numbers they put out are good the research they do is good and so there were a couple of kind of rolling crises that hit Guttmacher and all of them were pretty 
uh, pretty representative of what's going on more broadly, which was another reason it was worth using them as the as the kind of opening of the piece. But it's you know the first in 2017, the the organization did a a big survey of a lot of its affiliates and its staff, and they they got back discontent from the staff about the the coalition that Guttmacher is in. Like the so the staff was critical of their work with Planned Parenthood, which they said was basically a stand-in for kind of white feminism, and also the all of the coalition work that they're doing with ACLU, because ACLU does you know a ton of you know reproductive rights work. ACLU at the time was coming under criticism from uh, different sections of the left for having defended the Unite the Right march, you know, where Heather Heyer was later killed by a by a by a protester at by a demonstrator who was with the fascist right there. And so Heather Heyer. Yeah. And so association with you know, so those associations came under fire. The staff were saying we ought to be, you know, much more affiliated with reproductive justice organizations, which is, which is a, a phrase kind of popularized by Loretta, Loretta Ross, which says that you have to look at, at abortion politics through the lens of racial justice as well. And so that leads to uh, interviews with all the staff, a, a massive report eventually gets put out, you know, consultants are brought in to do all sorts of trainings. This comes out in 2019, then this leads into 2020, June 2020, when uh, when all of the organizations across the spectrum are responding to the murder of, of George Floyd. And in, in the DC office, they, the staff and the, and the bosses down there sit down and talk about how it is that they at Guttmacher can participate in this reckoning, that this, this reckoning with the US's uh, history of racism that is going on. And the staff immediately pivots to, well, let's loosen deadlines. Let's take, you know, let's allow, you know, un unlimited leave without, you know, without, you know, un unexcused paid leave, unlimited. Let's do more uh, diversity, you know, DEI trainings in the workforce. And what, what made Guttmacher a little bit unusual is that the, the boss there snapped back. Her name's Heather Boonstra. Um, and she said, look, you guys are being self-centered. That was the phrase that appeared in Prism. You guys are being self-centered. This is not about you. you know." And she said, what I'm here to talk about is all of the African-American men that are getting beaten up by society, beaten up by this system. And what can we do about that? And you guys just want to talk about your own workplace issues. And so that leads to complaints, to HR, to the board. And it, and it leads to a very long story in Prism, this, this news outlet about how, you know, Boonstra and the management are creating this like toxic white feminist culture that is destroying Guttmacher. But then the investigation finds that no, this was not a case of discrimination. This was a case of pe two people disagreeing with each other and, and refashioning their disagreement in term in social justice terms. Uh, and so that's, so that's basically the Guttmacher story which is a story I, of so many other organizations. I thought it was interesting that the people who were asking for like loosened deadlines and leave were white. Or, or certainly not black. Right. Okay. They were not right. black. Okay. Pro like it, it, it according to the, right. we don't know exactly who said what anonymous quote, uh, but right. we do, but we do know that the office was heavily white and we do know that it, there were no black people in that, in the DC branch. So, right. Yes. And you spoke to someone who's involved in climate activism and they told you an anecdote about reaching out to a major uh, mm -hmm. environmentalist group about taking some action around the debate over Build Back Better, if I have that right. And yeah. they were told that the group is actually too busy focusing on internal strife. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they said they said we. this is May uh, of 2021. It was the height of Build Back Better. They said we're the next eight weeks we're doing internal work. But yeah, there's they're they're like no, we have we're not doing, we're not participating in politics right now, for the next, and the guy's like eight weeks are, like a day right now, matters every yeah. single hour matters. But yeah, they so they were like yeah, we're taking eight weeks off, and and as my my understanding is it became even a little bit more than that. 
Well, the good thing is that obviously the people on the right are also doing this and uh, engaging in uh, <laughs> looking at their own internal dynamics. And yeah, I be, I jest, obviously. Right. I mean, that. and they, you know, they, they have their own infighting and all movements have infighting and, and some level of it is healthy. Uh, yeah. So, so that, so that movements can self-correct before they get too far off, off course. Uh, some of it obviously is not healthy and, and you're right. Like they, they have their, you know, to borrow the, that the phrase they've stolen from the civil rights union, they've got their eyes on the prize. Like they're, mm -hmm. you know, right. they're, they're gunning for power. So let me put you uh, uh, some critiques I've seen of your piece, which is that, so one takeaway from the article is that, you know, all this internal strife has hobbled the progressive movement. And so one criticism I've seen you get is that, well, there's no evidence that even absent this internal strife, right. that the progressive movement would have been able to achieve anything that it hasn't already achieved. How do you respond to that? I mean, maybe like that's, that could be, that could be true. It doesn't make the strife less newsworthy necessarily. It may make it less important to the country. It's, it's fair to say that, that a lot of these organizations aren't, are, you know, have had their ups and downs over the years but i also think that they, they they're real like they do actually have some level of power so if you are a politician in washington dc and you're trying to figure out how you're going to vote on a reproductive rights question uh what the position of NARAL and planned parenthood is matters to you like that's going to you're, you're it, it, you know, you might buck them and you might be fine with that, but then you might, if you get primaried, it's a very easy thing for an opponent to say, like, you know, they bucked NARAL and Planned Parenthood and they have a zero rating from Planned Parenthood and I have a hundred percent rating with Planned Parenthood and you should therefore vote for me. Same is true across issue areas, you know, whether it's the Sierra clubs or league of conservation voters, human rights campaign, like they they end up serving as proxies for where we'll stand on these issues. And because voters just don't have time to, to like research every single candidate. Like I, I voted this morning in my local uh, council race and, and I hadn't even researched yet the at-large council race. And so I just quickly looked them up and I saw that one of them was endorsed by Tenac, which is the like local tenants adv advocacy group. I'm like, okay, I'm like that. I'm voting for the Tenac person. Like, I don't have to know anything else like they, because I trust them. They've like met with these different candidates and they've decided this is going to be the best one for tenant rights in Washington, DC. And I think a lot of voters in democratic primaries look at places like the Sierra club. Now it's also true that they, they can, they can be a sponge for energy and the internet has kind of up, upended that. So prior to say like the, you know, 2000s, the, the groups like Sierra Club, NAACP, you know, these major kind of progressive nonprofits had such close access to these politicians that it's true that they would, that the way that they came down on an issue or whether they endorsed you or not could be decisive to you, but they weren't pushing very hard at all. Like they were kind of, they were captured. Um, Jane Hampshire called it in... 2009 and 10 during the Obama years, the veal pen. So they're like, they're, they, it, it did go both ways. Now it was slightly broken up for a while by the internet because people who cared about issues could, could bypass these gatekeeping nonprofit organizations. And they're, now they're starting to absorb a little bit more of that, absorb it back into itself, like the way that the ecosystem works. Though, I mean, there, there are plenty of like interesting analyses and criticisms of kind of nonprofit industrial complex in Washington, DC. But th this story kind of doesn't grapple either way with those. It just says, let's, let's assume that you think an organization ought to function. Take that for granted. And then ask the question, are they functioning? What a crazy concept. An organization right. <laughs> <functioning>. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could say like, it doesn't matter if they function and, and you might be right which is, which is wild, right. and which, and which I think is related to their dysfunction because they don't have any outputs. Like they don't have any, at least with say media companies, which have gone through this very similar types of turmoil, 
you saw, you know, while I'm editing the piece, like the Washington Post is completely melting down over very similar dynamics. Every day, though, they have to put out some type of product. Like the paper is going to land on people's doorsteps. And that requirement to produce, you know, focuses the mind a little. Right. Not totally, but like, what does the Sierra Club have to do? Like, they're trying, they're, they're trying to save, save the, the planet. Yeah. Right, save the world. But like, what do they have to do on Monday or Tuesday right. or for eight I, weeks? It, was, it wasn't them, but it, yeah. I mean, I do wonder how much of this is exacerbated by feelings of powerlessness. I mean, you mm -hmm. talk about in this piece that people are frustrated that we have this trifecta. The Democrats have a trifecta and they're not going to have it for a long time. So what are you doing? Why aren't you making, you know, change while we can, while you can. But I wonder how much of this is like, well, how much change can be made? I mean, look at how dysfunctional everything is, whether it's the rotating villain with like cinema and mansion or Biden not issuing executive orders. You know, I think that people probably do feel like, well, here's a, a place I can have an impact which may, of course, yeah. be a negative, toxic impact. But. Yeah, Mich Michelle Goldberg had a column that jumped off of this whole theme the other day, and she, her phrase was something like, you know, if I can't change the world, at least I can decolonize my office. Right. Um, and as, some, as, as one of the executive directors in quoted in my story said something like, you know, I might not be able to end racism, but at least I can um, get my manager fired. Yeah. So it, it gives you some sense that, all of this work that you're doing is making some change in the world. Like you're at least, and that, and you know, it's also generally good practice to, you know, focus your activism, you know, closest to home. Like that's, that's a good thing. Like you don't want to ignore uh, where you are. Yeah. Um, and you know, the all, and I think it, you know, all these places ought to be unionized and the, bosses ought to just recognize the unions and quickly negotiate contracts. Like the idea, the idea that you're a progressive nonprofit that's fighting a union is just absurd on its face. So I want to ask you about another area of, uh, that's caused some internal strife on the left, but in my opinion, not enough. Uh, and that is the Ukraine proxy war. And, um, I, I've been surprised to see that basically the entire congressional progressive caucus, including Bernie Sanders and the squad, Everybody lined up to vote for the $40 billion Ukraine proxy war bill. And previously, the Land Lease Act, uh, both of these measures just increase U.S. support uh, to Ukraine, primarily military. Billions of dollars will go to U.S. weapons manufacturers as a result. And however you feel about the measure, there was no dissent at all. Everybody was on board with it, even people who had previously warned about the dangers of military escalation inside Ukraine. So I'm wondering, you know, based on... Uh, you know, the, the sources you have on the Hill. Can you give us any insight into what explains this uniform position and why there not only was this unanimous vote, but pretty much everybody except for Cori Bush refused to even explain why they did it. Cori Bush was the only one to put out a statement trying to mm -hmm. explain her vote. Yeah, it's an, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I think, I think part of it is it reflects just the absolute absence of any kind of st strong anti-war base in the in the United States like there isn't like I don't think that they're feeling a lot of pressure you know in, to vote one way they're they're feeling extraordinary amounts of pressure to vote yes for this package and feeling almost no pressure at all you know to vote against it and when you have a situation like that you're going to wind up you know with the Ron Pauls who just, you know, cast a conscience vote, but you're not going to wind up with anything beyond just, you know, a handful, handful of votes. So I think that structurally explains it individually, you know, the, the, the creation of a kind of anti-war or progressive foreign policy left within Congress has been, you know, led and really championed on, on the Hill by Matt Duss, you know, both at his, you know, first at his, at his own nonprofit uh, and then as kind of a senior advisor to, to Bernie Sanders and through his work with uh, Sanders, he, he was, you know, his work on the Yemen war powers resolution and others put him in close contact with, with other, you know, members of the congressional progressive caucus and created the embryonic structure of a kind of progressive foreign policy left. 
but you know, he's been pretty publicly, uh, you know, in the camp of Ukraine needs to be defended. I, he wrote a piece for TNR to that effect. Um, he's, he's, he's said, you know, posted things online. Like if you, you know, the, telling critics of the funding, like, why don't you just admit you want to surrender? Not, not the kind of rhetoric you'd expect from a, you know, somebody who's like stridently against any U S involvement in this. And so having, having him who's so well-respected among the progressive staffers and the progressive members in the house stake out that position, I think has then, then said to the other members, oh, you're, you're going to also be going up against this very embryonic progressive intellectual infrastructure that has developed in the U S if you vote against this now, in order to vote against it, a member of Congress would, they have, they're, they're getting really no pressure, no significant pressure from the left. And they also don't even see much in the way of support. Cause like a lot of members, if they're going to cast a, a controversial vote, they are going to want some validator. And you see this actually a related phenomenon would be whenever, um, DMFI democratic majority for Israel or APAC is like banging away at, uh, somebody for being anti-Israel and then, and they're transitioning that into anti-Semitic. Oftentimes those candidates will go to somebody like J street right. and say, well, you, you know, will you, if you don't endorse me, at least like say something publicly that I'm not like an anti-Semite and often J street will do that. And, it, and at least it gives them then some, some like support so that they can go forward. Otherwise they just, just get crushed. And so it, I think I would imagine that for some of it, it feels like there isn't that right now. Like there isn't, is, there isn't that structure and sufficient strength to say, okay, yes, you, you're calling, you're saying that I want, that I'm in the pocket of Putin and Putin wants to, and I, and I want to hand over the country to, to Putin. But however, these people who are widely respected say, say X and I'm with them. Right. And there aren't enough of those people maybe for them to, children because i think politicians ought you know need to be held accountable and need to be criticized but in the end politicians are only going to be as good as kind of the pressure that that they're under even the ones that you're most allied with say like bernie sanders or the squad right the famous go ahead and make me do it fdr quote which yeah may or may right not be apocryphal but um and on a related note, uh, is it, is there a similar phenomenon? Would you say with Julian Assange? Not not quite, because you could easily there are like good half dozen well respected press freedom groups, you know, across the like New York Times, Washington Post, like you know, like there's plenty of like, not that the New York Times and Washington Post are good on it, but they these press freedom groups have the support of like prominent New York Times, Washington Post yeah. people, and are you know those those newspapers are members of those groups so if you wanted to support assange you could very easily point to credible uh figures in that in the press freedom space and say look look um press freedom defense fund says this or like you know the you, you know any any of these half a dozen very credible organizations say that assange should be uh should have the charges dropped so i'm i'm with them so i don't now it's true that there isn't a whole lot of um, public outcry about it. Like that's true, and in Australia, for instance, like over the last couple of years, the the public has gotten really agitated about this question. His, his brother was Gabe was telling me the other day that over seventy percent of Australians want him freed, and so now the new Labor government is, you know, is on that side of the question. Ilan Omar did tweet something condemning the. Like, yeah, and she had of... she had before, um, but to, yeah, to her credit, yeah, she 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 posted uh, Mehdi Hassan's um, monologue that he did about how how unjust the prosecution was. Yeah. So, I think AOC has like retweeted ACLU or some other support for him. That's as a uh, toe in the water as you can get. Like right. a, a retweet. It's better than. 432 other other of the members uh and then rokana has you know but other than those three or two and a half like that's right well let's hope they can i mean personally speaking for myself let's hope they can rise to the level of marjorie taylor green who put out a pretty 
principle of the forceful right. statement. It was like it was like multiple tweets, which I think is just hilarious that she's outflanking certain people on issues like Assange. But anyway, do you have any predi- before we go? Just qu- any prediction on what is going to happen with Assange? Gabe was saying that it, this could move much faster than people think. I would trust him on that. That he thinks that you know there's 14 days to appeal and they're going to appeal or I guess down to 10 days or whatever. Now that they have very little hope in the appeal uh, that, that he seems, he's, he says that the UK has made it extremely clear that they're done with this. They don't want, they don't want this political problem on their hands anymore. And so it could be in a matter of months that he's sent over. And you've actually met Julian Assange. I met, I met him uh, in 2012 in the, I think it was 2012 in the embassy. Yeah. Which is, you ever been over to that embassy? Nope. Yeah, it was tiny, tiny, like it's like a three bedroom flat, and he had one bedroom plus then access to the the lobby area, which must was its own form of torture. And it was it was so it's surreal. It's like a block from the like luxury shopping, like London's like luxury shopping area. So strange to see like all these police cars like monitor, and they they, they had the police outside that embassy for a decade or whatever just in case he popped on over to do some luxury shopping yeah i'm not sure if you can convince any of your fellow journalists doesn't seem easy yeah they're like the uk like just everybody just they just they just want to pretend it's not happening and then the doj wants to lock him up and why do you think that is a part of it i think is and I think a lot of this is subconscious. Like I don't know how thought through it is, but if they can convince themselves that he is different than them, then A, he didn't scoop them on all this stuff. Right. Um, but true, then right. B, it's not a threat to them. And, and right. you know, we're very good like at rationalizing in that exact way. Like, you know, whenever you hear... Um, of something terrible health-wise that happened to somebody, the first thing you do is try to figure out ways that you can um, rationalize to yourself that they're different than you. Right. And that right, that but they were overweight. Right. Or, or, you know, what, what, what comorbidities did they have? Because right. famously healthy country that we are. Nobody here right. has comorbidities to think about. Uh, right, exactly. What comor- As soon as you would hear about somebody, you know, what comorbidities they have? Because because you don't want to think that that could happen to you. And so I think part of it is that they don't want to think that it could happen to them. Right. And, and the way to do that is to other him out of journalism. So Ryan Grimm is calling for the arrest of journalists across the country that they, so that they can only, so that they can experience it's the only way. Yeah. yeah. But we'd be right, like, yeah. yeah, we'd be like, they, they must've done something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know what their crime is for me. They didn't speak out about Assange. <laughs> They're going to lock him up. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. Great to hear from Ryan. Really and we'll link to all of his pieces in The Intercept. And I'll also link to an article that I wrote in response to Matt Duss, who we discussed, who is, uh, according to Ryan, leading the charge amongst the progressives to uh, extend the proxy war in Ukraine. So I'll post the response that I had to him because Matt Duss in his article uh, attacked the gray zone, which I work for basically calling for us to be ignored. He says, dealing with us is a waste of time. And I think his name calling is a waste of time, but I don't think engaging with his arguments are a waste of time. So I wrote an, art- an article responding to Matt Desk, which we'll link to. And uh, well, I mean, honestly, that's a step up saying that you should be ignored as opposed to smeared and deplatformed. So shout out <laughs> yeah, to Matt sure. yeah, Thank you, Matt Desk. be grateful. Yeah, yeah thank put you. That in, your, in your blurb, <laughs> in your bio. To get more, go to usefulidiots.substack.com and we'll see you next week. Great. Bye. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 